The Psalms help us to express our souls to God. How many times have you read the Psalms or read a Psalm and it just gave vent to your heart? It it, it expressed what was on your heart. Maybe you were reading a Psalm of lament or anguish or fear or joy or thrill. It expresses our souls to God. It helps us express our souls to God. John Calvin, in his introductory notes on his commentary on the Psalms, said the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. A soul overjoyed at God's goodness, a soul confused, a soul fearful and anxious. All of these things we find in the Psalms. And it's very helpful for us to find them there. In fact, you're going to find in many of the Psalms, they begin with a lament or a complaint or a desperate cry for help, and then they end with a triumphant note of victory. In fact, that's what we find here in Psalm chapter 3. We're told in the book of Job that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Right? You, go to, you sit around a campfire and what do sparks do? They fly up and out, right? And Job is saying man is born for trouble like that. We are born for trouble. Jesus said, in this world you will have many troubles. And so we shouldn't be surprised by that. Psalm chapter 3 is a song. Remember, all these are songs that the Hebrews and early Christians And Christians, some Christians even today do psalm singing. They sang this song. It's a song of real comfort and rest and confidence right in the middle of real deep and desperate trouble. The psalm teaches us how to do business with God, how to be real with God, expressing our troubled hearts to God and receiving all of the grace he wants to give us and help us with. In other words, this psalm helps us to live our lives or to live consciously before the Lord, always bringing our troubles, always bringing our requests, turning to him for help in every situation and letting him do all of his work in us and supply what we need. This psalm expresses perhaps the greatest trouble of David's life. King David wrote this psalm And he wrote this psalm while he was fleeing from his son, Absalom, who was trying to kill him. Absalom was the leader of a coup, right, who wanted David's throne, and they wanted to take it by force. So this trouble hit pretty close to home for David. This was not some abstract trouble, like, hey, we all have troubles, right, somewhere out there, this vague, nebulous feeling of trouble. This was acute, this was real, this was strong, this was personal. Just like your troubles are. I was just visiting with someone right before church and <clears throat> had a death of a loved one this last week, Right? talking to someone just a week ago, them expressing the deep trouble in their own family. Your trouble and my trouble is just as acute and personal as David's. Maybe not as big as David's, perhaps, but just as acute, just as personal. It's painful. Now, it could be that David wrote this psalm after the ordeal as he's reflecting on what happened. Maybe he, after the fact, he looked back and said, wow, this was bad. Many foes were rising against me. 
but the way that it reads and the tone of this psalm, it seems to indicate David was writing this psalm as he was running for his life. Imagine that. I want to say more about this later, but but just want to plant something in your mind up front here, okay? At the beginning, David says some were taunting. He was hearing the voices of some saying, there's no salvation for him in God. And yet at the very end, David victoriously declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. Right, so it started with hearing the taunts of his enemies and it ends with David declaring, God is a savior, God saves, salvation belongs to the Lord. Have you ever heard someone say something like religion is just a crutch or Jesus is a crutch? Have you ever had someone tell you that before? Maybe someone you were witnessing to or maybe a family member who doesn't believe in God or, or just thinks that that's for, for weaklings. When I hear someone say that, I do two things. I mean, almost invariably, two things go through my mind. First, I think I need a lot more than just a crutch. Right? A crutch is for someone with a sprained ankle or a broken leg. I need a savior. I do not need a crutch, and you don't either. We need a powerful and strong Savior. We need someone that we can say about salvation belongs to Him, my Lord, my Savior. But the second thing I do is I begin looking for their crutch. Because everybody leans on something, right? Everybody leans on something, especially when life begins to smack you around and throw you around like a rag doll. Everybody leans on something. Everybody turns somewhere or to something or to someone. Well, this psalm shows us where to go and what to do. And praise the Lord through Jesus Christ and his shed blood, we can approach God and do real business with God. We have to remember, David, this is an amazing psalm that shows us how to approach God, but David didn't have the cross to look to like we have. We can draw near with confidence and boldness. We can come to God for real help in every situation. So let's take a look at this psalm. Let's look at, I think it breaks up into four sections, at least that's the way I'm gonna look at it this morning. And let's let's see how it shows us David dealing with real problems, real trouble in the presence of the Lord. First, verses one and two, we see the troubles are many and massive and David knows it really well. Verses one and two, he says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no help, no salvation for him in God. David uses the word many three times on purpose, right? First, it seems like David is almost shocked when he says, O Lord, How many are my enemies? They're they're everywhere. And it just seems like the number keeps getting bigger and bigger. Of course, the leader of this horde of foes was his own son. But the revolt against David was massive. It was considerable. Absalom had worked for a period of time to gain support. In fact, in 2 Samuel 15, 6, it says this. After a period of time with Absalom 
working hard to gain the support of the people, it says Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And David recognized this. He knew this. He realized the conspiracy that Absalom had started was gaining steam and, 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 and he had firepower to do real damage. This especially became clear when one of David's counselors sided with Absalom over David. And David himself said, we need to flee. <laughs> we need to get out of town because the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. I mean, in David's mind, it was such a, it was such a turn of the tides in Absalom's favor that's like all the men have gone after him. David, seeing the writing on the wall, knew he needed to flee for his life. But it wasn't just that David had enemies, right? It wasn't just that, that there were many foes. It wasn't just that they were rising against him. They were also taunting him. They were saying, God isn't for you. God isn't with you. God doesn't hear you. There's no salvation for you. God has rejected you. Perhaps they were saying, you are now reaping what you've sown. And this hit home to David. I mean, this, this had to have hit home to David. David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. Perhaps David was thinking, I deserve this. And there's a sense in which he partially did. It's important for us to understand David's sin was forgiven, but there were real consequences for his sin, ongoing consequences for his sin. In fact, in 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan, when he came to David and confronted him for his sin with Bathsheba, said, I'm going to raise up someone in your family to do great evil. It's part of the consequences of his sin. But the bigger question is, was God done with David? And the answer is absolutely not. God was not done with David. God was not through with David. And the good news for you and I is, is that if you are in Christ, though you have big trouble, some have big trouble, you have big trouble, it does not have the final victory in your life. It doesn't have the final say. God is not through with you. Even if you can trace your trouble back to things you cannot undo in your past, how many have done that before? Oh my goodness. Often. Oh, if I would have done this or this, that wouldn't, this wouldn't be happening right now. Even if you can trace your trouble now to things that you can't undo in your past, God, our Lord, has not cast you aside. He is with you. He is for you. He is not through with you. And so... We see this, David goes in verses 1 and 2 saying, many enemies, many rising against me, many taunting me saying, God has rejected you, there's no salvation for you and God. He does that, verses 3 and 4, he turns from the enemy, from the problem, and he turns to the Lord. And that's so important. He turns to the Lord. 
In verses three and four, we see David going all in with God. No half measures, no half measures. He goes all in with God. Verses three and four, it says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. David throws himself completely on the Lord. But you, O Lord, do you do, you do that when you're in trouble? Right? He goes from talking to the Lord about the many foes rising against him, taunting him to, but you, O Lord. Many enemies, many, maybe you'd say, okay, I don't know that I have enemies. I can't point, point to a person. Okay, many troubles, many problems, massive problems. It seems like God has rejected me. But you, O Lord, right? But you, O Lord, there's a major shift here. And I just want to know, do you do this? Do you do this? Do you, do you turn to God in the midst of your trouble? Do you turn to him wholeheartedly with all of your heart? There's a wholehearted confidence here. I hope you hear that. As long as you and I keep talking about and looking at our troubles and our problems and our enemies they will appear, listen, they will appear like Mount Everest. And the Lord will appear as a mere anthill. That's the way that it works. Remember Joshua and Caleb uh, the, the, and, and the other 10 spies, they were, they were sent into the land to spy it out. Moses sent them in to spy it out. They came back, 10 came back with a bad report. Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. The 10 that came back with a bad report, they said, we were like grasshoppers before them, before these giants of the land. There's no way we can take the land. And Joshua and Caleb said, we can surely take it because God has given it to us. Amen. That's right. When we, ca- when we contrast our troubles, our real troubles, real troubles that you're facing right now, the things that are flooding your mind right now, when we contrast our real troubles with the true and living God who is our Lord, truly, then all of a sudden God becomes like this massive Mount Everest of resources and blessing for us. Yeah. And all of our troubles, though real, Right? An anthill an ant is real. Okay? But they appear like an anthill compared to the Lord. David turns to the Lord. He says, but you, O Lord. And he, he turns to the Lord and he says three things. Remember, there were three manys in verses one and two. Many foes, many rising against David, many taunting him. Well, here David says three things to counteract and neutralize the the many foes and tauntings of his enemies. First, David says, many are my foes, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. The picture here is of a shield of protection that completely surrounds David. Not like you know, Captain America shield that just, you know, just gives a little bit of protection. This is a shield that completely surrounds David. Yes. 
And I love what this says. Notice it doesn't say that the Lord gives David a shield. It's that the Lord is his shield. He doesn't just give him a tool. He doesn't just give him a piece of armory. It's the Lord is David's shield all around him, completely about him. The point is that that the Lord is surrounding David with his protection and so David is absolutely secure. Psalm 125 verse 2 says, as the Lord surrounds Jerusalem, excuse me, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Many foes, many troubles, but David says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. This morning, whatever you're facing, the Lord is a shield about you. If you are in Christ, that is yours. That is a blessing for you. That is what the Lord is for you. Then David says, many are rising against me, but you, O Lord, are my glory. You are my glory. The word glory could mean honor, dignity, reputation, splendor, riches, abundance. And it probably means all of that, right? Remember what's happening? For David, it appears that the glory of his kingdom and throne is being taken away from him. The splendor, the dignity, the honor of his throne is being taken away from him. And yet, I believe David is saying, the Lord is my glory, meaning that God would maintain David's honor and his dignity and his splendor. And not only that, but the Lord was the true riches and abundance that David possessed. Yes. Isn't, that the, isn't that how we view God? He is our, he, no matter if everything in the world is taken from us, people we love, possessions, but we have the Lord, then we have true riches and glory in him. In Psalm 16, David said the following. He said, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. So there are many foes and troubles on the rise against David and us, but the Lord, David says, is my glory. 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter said that even when fiery trials right, are, are rising against us and the, the heat of the fire is getting very, very close to us, maybe it's, maybe it's getting so close we're being singed by the fiery trials, he said even when that's happening, we can know Jesus in such a precious way that we experience joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. So David says, many are rising against me, but you, O Lord, are my glory. And finally, David says, many are taunting me, saying there's no salvation for him in God, but you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. Remember that the leader of these foes was his son, I mean, imagine the acute pain David was feeling, not only the fear for his life and so forth, but also the, the deep and acute pain he would have felt. 
the taunts came, God isn't with you. Look, your own son wants you dead. Yikes. You're the king. You're the anointed of God. What's going on? He must have rejected you. God isn't with you. God isn't for you. But David looks to God and says, you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. I love this. Now, this could be speaking about, you know, this could be talking about David having confidence that the Lord would restore him to his throne. It could mean that, and it might mean that, at least in part. More likely, it's David saying the Lord would lift his drooping, discouraged, sad heart. He would lift his head. Charles Spurgeon wrote on this phrase, he said, there is a lifting up in honor after shame, in health after sickness, in gladness after sorrow, in restoration after a fall, in victory after temporary defeat. In all these respects, the Lord is the lifter of our head. Remember the points we're making is that David went all in with God. He said, you, you, O Lord, you're my protection. You're a shield around me. You are my glory. You're my treasure. And you are the one who lifts my head. Then David prays. First he turns to the Lord and says, you are all of these things for me. And then he prays. But it, it's not the kind of prayer that would, that would fit into a nice, neat, Iowa nice, quiet, unassuming prayer meeting. Right? And here's why. If David says, I cried aloud to the Lord. I remember being in a prayer meeting years ago and, and we were praying about a situation. We're praying for this one woman and she was going through horrific situations in her life, circumstances in her life. And we prayed for her. We labored and prayed for prayer for her. And at the end of our prayer, she just cried out and you could tell us from the depth of her soul, Oh, Lord, save me! And it was so moving. I was like, oh my goodness. Oh, it was so powerful. That's what David did here. He cried aloud. Don't try to, well, maybe he just cried aloud in his heart. No, it would say, it would say that. He cried out loud to God. He cried with a loud voice to God. He knew that God was his protection, right? He just said that. He knew that God was his glory. He just said that. He knew that God would, was the lifter of his head, but he still, he was still on the run from his son who wanted to kill him. And so he cried aloud to the Lord. He cried out loud. The taunters were saying, there's no salvation. God doesn't hear you. And David's saying, I still have a voice. And I'm going to cry out loud to God. And the Lord answered him. The Lord answered him from his holy hill. It wasn't the volume of David's prayer that elicited the answer of the Lord. It was David's faith that elicited God's answer. The volume of his voice came from the desperate passion of his heart and his faith in God. He just got done saying, you are all of these things for me, so I'm crying out to you. Reminds me of a story of Jesus and um, blind Bartimaeus. 
Because remember that story in Mark 10? It's this blind man. Jesus and his disciples, I think they're on their way to Jericho. And it says this blind man, he heard that Jesus was coming. And so he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people started telling, shooing away, say, be quiet, Bartimaeus, get out of here. And what did he do? He cried out all the more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus went over to him and said, what do you want me to do for you? I love that question. <laughs> and he said, I want to see. I want, I want to see. And so Jesus healed him. He said, but he, but he said this, may be done according to your faith. Not because you spoke loudly, but according to your faith. David found himself in a hot mess. The mess of his life. A mess he could not get himself out of. And so he went all in with the Lord. He turned to the Lord. He declared, he, he confessed all that the Lord was for him in faith. And then he cried out for all of God's help. And God answered. And because God answered, verses 5 and 6 say, comfort, rest, and courage came. Sweet. Sweet comfort, rest, and courage. Verses 5 and 6 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around because of all the Lord is for David or was for David, the Lord is a, right, he's a shield surrounding him. He's, a, he's his glory supplying all his needs and he is a lifter of his sagging head. The Lord heard his cry and answered him. And guess what? David was comforted and emboldened. David was given this deep, satisfying peace and comfort and great courage. says David laid down and he slept in peace and comfort. Now there were times in the Psalms, you read times in the Psalms where David was unable to sleep in the comfort of his palace and his own bed because of, you know, because of distress and trouble or because of the guilt of his own sin. Where is David able to sleep like a baby? On the run <laughs> from his son out in the wilderness He's able to sleep while fleeing for his life. And why was he able to sleep so well? Well, it says, for the Lord sustained him. The picture here is of the Lord being David's support or the thing that he rested on. The word uh, sustain could be support, used as a, as a verb. He was his support or he supported him. I think it gives us this picture of David saying, I slept in peace because I slept in the Lord's lap. He was surrounding me. He's my protection. And I laid down on his lap and slept like a baby. And then David expresses this courage, this confidence in the Lord when he gets up to face the day. Right? Because after we wake up in the morning, we still got to face the day. He says, I laid down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. And then he says, 
bring it on. Whatever, whatever's in front of me, bring it on. I will not be afraid of many thousands who have set themselves against me all around. David says, I'm not going to be afraid. He's fearless of the many thousands of people who are surrounding him. Unafraid of thousands of people who want him dead and are closing in. Of course, there's a good reason for that, right? Who else is surrounding David? The Lord. The Lord is surrounding David. Right? It's like, it's like this, this closing army, this coup. They want David dead. And have you, ever had, have you ever had thousands of people like literally wanting you dead? Okay, so big problem, right? They're closing in on David and David knows that to get to him, they got to get through the Lord. Because the Lord is surrounding him. David had faith to see that between him and those who wanted him dead stood the Lord of heaven and earth. Which is why David had such confidence of the victory that the Lord would win. Which we see in verses seven and eight. Confidence or assurance of victory. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, when prayer leads the van... In due time, deliverance brings up the rear. In other words, when prayer leads the way, deliverance comes later. Deliverance brings up the rear. Deliverance is sure to bring up the rear. David knew that salvation belongs to the Lord. He knew that salvation was from the Lord. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, David says, Arise, O Lord, save me, Oh my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David calls on the Lord, listen, who sits on his throne and David says, Lord, arise and kick some butt. Seriously. Get up, Lord, rise up and do battle for me. We sang about it earlier. The battle belongs to the Lord. Rise up, Lord. And he says, break the teeth of the wicked. Strike all my enemies on the cheek. That's what he said. Rise up, Lord. Don't sit any longer. Rise up. And assured that God will, he confidently declares salvation belongs to the Lord. What a way to end, right? Many foes, many enemies rising, many taunting, saying there's no salvation. David at the end says salvation belongs to the Lord. He gives it to his people. Some have suggested that this phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord, is actually the sum of the message of the entire Bible. The message of the Bible, some have said, is God saves sinners or God saves or what David says here, salvation belongs to the Lord. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. David could not save himself. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. Think about all the great stories in the Bible of how God saved in such a clear, manifest way that it was unmistakable that God gave the victory. You guys know the story of Moses and the people of Israel going through the Red Sea, right? They get to the Red Sea and it's what you would expect. It's a, it's a sea. <laughs> and the people are scared because they see Pharaoh and his chariots and horsemen coming and God parts the sea and they walk through and when the Egyptians come through, God closes the sea upon them. They get to the other side and Moses sings a song. And here's what he says. Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Think of the story of Gideon. God came to Gideon. The Midianites were, were you know, oppressing the people of Israel. God came to Gideon and said, you are a mighty man of valor, and I'm going to use you to deliver my people. And Gideon's like, who are you talking to? And God convinced him, you're the man. And God gave him 300 men to defeat the Midianites. To make it clear, salvation belongs to the Lord. In Revelation 19, at the very end of the Bible, after the fall of Babylon, there's rejoicing in heaven of a great multitude and they're crying out to God, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to the Lord. Martin Luther commented on this verse and he said the following, he said, quote, it is the Lord alone that saves and blesses. And even though the whole mass of all evils should be gathered together in one against a man, still it is the Lord who saves. Salvation and blessing are in his hands. What then shall I fear? What are you afraid of? What do you fear? What is it? Reminds me of Romans 8.31 which says if God is for us who can be against us? And of course this is a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. If God is for us nobody can successfully be against us. It doesn't mean that we won't have opposition. We certainly will. Paul had his head cut off but he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one can successfully be against anyone that God is for. But how can we know if God is for us? How can we know? How can we confidently say like, like Paul, if God is for me, who can be against me? How can we confidently say like David, salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, the key is the Lord Jesus Christ. The key is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Remember the name that the angel told Joseph would be given to Jesus? 
You're going to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You will name him Jesus because he will save his people. So let me ask you some questions. Are you in Christ? Have your sins been washed away? Have you been justified fully through the blood of Jesus? Have you been made as white as snow? How fitting today, right? Have you been made as white as snow because of the blood of Jesus? We sang earlier, does the name of Jesus charm your fears and bid your sorrows cease? Is the name of Jesus music in your ears and life and health and peace? If it is, the reason for it is because salvation belongs to the Lord and he has brought it to you. He has given it to you. Think about the salvation that Jesus wins for us and gives to us. The New Testament talks about salvation in three ways. It talks about salvation in the past, salvation in the present, and salvation in the future. If you are a Christian, there's, a, there's one sense in which you are saved, past tense, perfect tense, past perfect tense. There's another sense in which you are being saved, and there's another sense in which you will certainly be fully saved. You are saved in the sense that your sins have been taken away. And the real enemies of sin and death and Satan have been defeated decisively. Amen? Amen. Many are our foes, but Christ has conquered them through his death and resurrection. You are being saved in the sense that you are being made more and more like Christ. You are, your life is being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. You are being saved. You're being sanctified. You're being transformed. And you will be saved when Christ comes again. He will save us. What does uh, Hebrews chapter 9 say? When Christ comes again, he will not deal with sin again, but he is coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you are a Christian, own it, rejoice in it, celebrate it, and sing about it. This is your glory. Christ is your glory. He is your Savior. Salvation, full salvation has come to you. Now you might say, okay, thank you, amen. But when I walk out of here, my real troubles are still going to be staring me right in the face, taunting me. What do I do with that? Amen. They will be. And mine too. But it starts, it starts with knowing salvation in Christ. And then you take every trouble and we do this. We draw near through Christ to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace 
to help in every time of need. That's what we do. And right, we learned that in the book of Hebrews, if you were with us in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. This is one of those verses you should just put in your memory bank. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In every time of need. Through Christ, drawing near, crying out to God for his help. That's what you need to do. That's what we need to do. Now, I love how Hebrews 4 tells us, let us do this. In other words, you should do this by yourself. You should do this when you're home. You should do this when you have the house all to yourself. You cry out to God. And we should also do this together. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's what, that's what David did. Isn't that what he did? Big troubles, he turned to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. The Lord gave him help and support and he declared victory in the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray.